Hello and welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is airing on Sunday, June 14th, 2020, but was compiled over the last few days by the wonderful show team. Uh, I'm Emily Scott, and I'm excited to be able to guide you through our awesome show today. And first up, we have a local story from Matt about yeast, of all things. Uh, Here we go. I don't know about you, but with all this coronavirus stuff, I've heard people talk about silver linings a lot. Stuff like just appreciating your family. Some people are actually getting sleep. A lot of people are getting paid more on unemployment than they were before. Silver lining, silver lining. One of the more um, picturesque silver lining is people seem to be able to have the time and curiosity to make bread. Bread making has become popular. Hello, good, how are you? Good. Are you giving out yeast? Yes, I am. I mean, I like bread. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. I don't do too much bread. You know, so I'm not a bread person. I'm Brazilian, so I make a different kind of bread. I make pão queijo. I've been on a vegan diet since this has been going on. Which, which is a cheese bread? Well, I mean, I just wanted to do plant-based while this is at a vegan going on because oh. viruses don't really work. Is that a vegan? Work on plant-based food. Is that a vegan? Is that a vegan? What yeast for making bread? Dry active yeast. Uh, it is I from, like Yeah, you can make bread with the, uh, with the yeast. Brooklyn, New York, a couple months into the coronavirus. Bread making has become popular and consequentially baking yeast, an ingredient that makes the bread rise, is in low supply. On a neighborhood Facebook page, one community member said she'd be giving out some yeast. Hi. I'm Matthew from uh, Facebook and Radio Free Brooklyn. Nice. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. And our neighborhood yeast benefactor is oh, Taisha. What up? We're doing a little yeast giveaway today, if you want some. That's awesome. Yeah. Taisha and her BFF Peanut have set up a folding table. It looks like a lemonade stand, but for nerdy, aspiring breadsmiths. Individual plastic bags with two tablespoons of yeast rationed into them sit on that table, awaiting their hopeful adoption. Do you want to chat now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Where, where'd the stockpile of yeast uh, come from? Uh, it came from my mom in Florida. Um, I told her that there was a shortage going on, and I said, if you're going out, like, no pressure. I don't want you running around looking for this or anything. Uh-huh. But if you're going out, if you happen to find any, um, let me know. And so she found a place that was selling it, and so she sent me three bag, like three 16-ounce bags of it. So first I reached out to all of my close friends and did uh, gave it away like that. And I was like, I still have a bunch, so. (laughs) Where'd that instinct come from to uh, give it away? Does any of that come from your your mom? Oh yeah, for sure. My mom is the most giving person. Actually, I've always kind of gotten on her for being a little too giving, because sometimes I feel like she gets taken advantage of. Oh no, any examples? And so, what'd you say? Any examples? Um, just like family related stuff. Like she'll just give, you know, she'll give money to people and then they won't pay her back, you know? Mm. And then she'll be like, oh, it's no problem. Like, I mean, she has literally one time like picked up a family that she saw who was asking for money on the street and put them up in a hotel for like two weeks. So she's um, she's really, really giving woman. And so I definitely got it yeah. for her. What was that a big, was that a hard thing for her to do? Does your family have money? Or was it like, mom, we need that money too? No, yeah, we've always been poor, like <laughs> extremely poor. 
I think it comes from her just like knowing that she would want someone to do the same for her too. Mm -hmm. But she's the type of person who, she has $5 and you ask for $5, like she'll give that to you. Taisha is clearly her mother's daughter. Instinctively, immediately, she went to lengths to give away the excess yeast to help out her aspiring artisanal bread smithing neighbors. I don't know if we can answer why bread making has had a resurgence in this piece, but it clearly has. So I, I, it, bread making is actually something that I had been wanting to get into personally for a while because I saw some documentary with Michael Pollan on uh, Netflix. I can't oh, remember what it was called. I watched called. that. Yeah, and they go into like earth and air and water and fire and all yeah. of that. You got that one quote where it's... Um... He told me something I didn't realize. That if I gave you bag of flour and water and you had nothing else to live on you could live on that for a while but eventually you would die but if you take that same bag of flour and water and bake it into bread you could live indefinitely yeah like the magic of it yeah it's really incredible now bread making is cute and that's kind of what this piece is about but that reality that launched its resurgence, the virus that has decimated New York City, is never far from sight. Have you been affected personally? Yeah, at the very beginning of this, I mean, um, I think that I probably contracted it early on, back in March. Um, and I was super sick for three weeks and was in the hospital. Um, had pneumonia, like the whole nine yards. And then that was when it, I think it got real for me. I was like, yeah, this shit is actually out there. Like, um, I mean, it can't get much more real. Yeah, so. Um, Best friend, is it okay if I ask you a couple questions? Yeah. Here's her friend who helped her set up, Peanut. I'm, uh, I'm an HIV counselor for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Mm -hmm. The obvious question is, like, do you see any parallels in history between this pandemic? Yes, and yes, yes, of course. It's, it's, um, it's come a lot quicker than, than, than the AIDS epidemic has came. Like, um, coronavirus just hit us fast and a lot of people were affected. Is it difficult when people try to ignore this virus the way that we ignored AIDS for about yes, 20 years? Yes, yes, yes. Um, a lot of people don't take it serious, but... If you look at the percentage of people that have died so far, it's already surpassed a lot of other diseases. So it's, it's scary that people don't take it that serious. Hello. Hi, how are you? No, we don't. Oh, sorry. Taisha had posted on Facebook that she was giving yeast away. 30, 40 people seemed interested. I was curious how many would follow through. I have my doubts about Facebook activity translating into the real world. So I asked her about it. Because of my mask and the distance from me and the mic, I've overdubbed myself. Have you done anything like this before? Have you done anything like this before? My, my, my hypothesis, my hypothesis are so much more is that people are so much more online, enthusiastic online. Than they are, yeah. Especially for like political things. Like, oh, we're going to go hit the streets. To which Taisha gave the perfect explanation of what happens. And then chips. <laughs> Since this recording, thousands more have died. Yeah. <laughs> and George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. And people have actually taken to the streets. 
But many Americans, this whole time, don't have time for chips or bread making. Like this delivery driver. I mean, I gotta pay my bills, you know? Some people didn't even get unemployment, so it's hard, you know? Does it make you angry that uh, some people, they, they lose their jobs, but they get paid more in unemployment? Is no. Kind of worse, like... No, no. I can't stay home. Yeah, I, I, I like being outside, so. I mean, not outside, but I like being working. Bread making and the newfound time to make it, at least for the 34% of Americans that can work from home, can be considered a silver lining. That phrase has come up a lot. Where is it from? Well, it's from John Milton, the old poet, 1634. Written during the aftermath of the Italian plague, the second-to-last flare-up of the bubonic plague. I'm not sure if it's an inspiring context or not that the silver lining was coined during the time of other pandemics. But let's end this piece with the original source material for that phrase. Was I deceived? Or did a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night? I did not err. There does a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night. Wish I could shake your hand. <laughs> there does a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night and casts a gleam over this tuft grove. Thanks to Taisha for setting this up. I'm Matthew Schneeman for Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. for that great piece, Matt. Uh, I just want to note that we do not officially endorse a vegan diet as an antiviral solution. Uh, please do your own research and consult a licensed physician. Uh, all right. So up next, we have a story from the wonderful Teresa Robinson. Take it away, Teresa. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I will be delivering a story to you today. I am calling Juneteenth for whom the material I drew from to gather for this article is from an article on usatoday.com written by Janine Stantucci, also an article from theguardian.com written by Peter Beaumont, and finally an article from The Independent written by Alex Woodward. On Friday evening, President Trump frantically changed the date for his next campaign rally. After days of controversy surrounding his original choice to hold his first rally since the coronavirus lockdowns on Juneteenth, 
the president announced he would change the date of the event to the next day of June 20th. And of course, he used his Twitter fingers to make the public service announcement. When asked why the campaign decided to hold the rally in Tulsa and on Juneteenth, senior Trump campaign advisor Katrina Pearson said in a statement, as a party of Lincoln, Republicans are proud of the history of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is a holiday celebrated on June 19th that commemorates the end of slavery in the United States. Across the country, the day is marked with events and parades that bring together the black community to celebrate cultural heritage and a long-standing history of survival after the darkness of slavery and the Jim Crow era. Many also use the holiday to call attention to modern racial inequality and a need for black America to continue the work of organizing and supporting each other to build up the black economic power. In many communities, it's commonly referred to as Freedom Day and commemorates the date in 1865 when Major General Gordon Granger traveled to Galveston, Texas to inform residents that President Lincoln had freed the slaves and that slave owners had to comply. However, the Emancipation Proclamation was originally established on January 1st of 1863. There is no reason why there was a two and a half year delay in letting Texas know about the abolition of slavery. According to Juneteenth.com, some accounts place the delay on a messenger who was murdered on his way to Texas with the news, while others say that the news was deliberately withheld. While the 13th Amendment of the Constitution had prohibited the enslavement of Americans, it exempted slavery for those convicted of a crime. Black codes in economically devastated southern states subjected harsh penalties for newly freed black Americans for crimes like loitering or breaking curfew, ensuring they would remain in chains for decades to follow. Trump has never held a rally in Tulsa. Tulsa's own Juneteenth celebration, which normally occurs on May 31st, was postponed because of the pandemic. However, he will still gather with his base at the site of one of the worst massacres of African-Americans in the country's history. On May 31st in 1921, a white mob stormed Tulsa City of Greenwood, known as Black Wall Street, for its prosperity. The catastrophic massacre took place over the next two days, with white mobs attacking the residents, loitering their businesses, and eventually dropping bombs over the entire neighborhood of the city. Historical accounts state that 35 blocks of homes, businesses, libraries, hospitals, schools, and churches were destroyed by fire within 14 hours. Dozens of families were left homeless and forced to live as refugees in tent cities created in nearby towns. The city's once famed Black Wall Street has never recovered. Following a familiar pattern of racist lynchings of the area, the attack started with accusations that a 19-year-old black man, Dick Rowland, had assaulted Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white girl. As he was arrested, the rumor spread that the accused man was about to be lynched, leading to confrontations outside the courtroom in which shots were fired that led to exchanges that killed dozens of people. That, in turn, triggered white mobs to attack black businesses, homes, and individuals. Although the official tally at the time claimed just 36 people had been killed, historians believe the number to be considerably higher. In 2001, the report of the Race Riot Commission suggested there were between 100 to 300 deaths overall. From the beginning of his political career, Trump has always used his campaign to invoke white nationalism with his campaign phrase, Make America Great Again. He stated in a pre-recorded video that his rally will be a celebration despite ongoing protests of racism and police brutality facing black Americans. His aloof, 
but intentional examples of racism over the last few weeks come as America's community of color have been hit hardest by the coronavirus and catastrophic job losses. Critics accuse the president of racially motivated trolling and timing akin to blasphemy. California Senator Kamala Harris said the president's chosen date and location is not, quote, just a wink to white supremacists. He's throwing them a welcome home party, end quote. Angela Davis told Democracy Now! that the president, quote, represents a sector of the population of this country that wants to return to the past with all of its white supremacy, with all of its misogyny, end quote. On Monday, a Tulsa police major also dismissed the disproportionate number of police killings of black Americans by telling a radio show that police are shooting them, quote, about 24 percent less than we probably ought to be, end quote. Haven't we had enough? After the last week of guiding many circles about how to address issues of racism and police brutality and providing, as one of my comrades describes as painful porn stories to white colleagues and friends, I am completely disgusted with having to tell yet another black story of inequality being maintained by a system of injustice. We are exhausted from fighting and surviving the other virus, always known as racism, that is and has always been supported and sustained by the oldest gang in American history, described in this story as a white mob, but historically referred to as the KKK, white supremacists, and to many other people in my community, the biggest enemy we have yet to overcome. The rally comes after weeks of worldwide protests against racism and police brutality in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey and Tony McDade. Take care of yourselves, people. It's a war out there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for that important story, Teresa. Uh, Teresa will be hosting the Liberation Artist Showcase Open Mic on Sunday, June 28th at 7 p.m. And I highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, it's digital, and I attended the last one, and it was really an amazing show featuring artists of all sorts of different mediums from literally all over the world. Uh, people were coming in from Europe. Um, there were dancers, musicians, visual artists, and more at that last one. Um, the event also features uh, points of action for social justice throughout the night that viewers are able to participate in. So it's really a great combination of entertainment and involvement. Uh, and like I mentioned, it's a virtual event, super easy to join, and it's free with a suggested donation. Tickets are available on Eventbrite, and you can find more information about the showcase on the Objection to the Rule Facebook page. Uh, and now here's a song that Teresa picked out. This is Someday We'll All Be Free by Donny Hathaway. We'll be right back with some more Objection to the Rule.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am Emily, and here's Jasmine with her story. Hello, this is Jasmine, and you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm recording this on Saturday, June the 13th. It's me and my cat still quarantined here in Brooklyn. And this week, I'm bringing you a piece of old national news. I know it's been a long six months, but we finally made it to June. And in case you didn't know, I'm here to tell you that it is Black Music Month. A little over 40 years ago, on June 7, 1979, the then President Jimmy Carter issued a decree to honor the contributions of Black singers, musicians, and songwriters to American history and culture by officially making June Black Music Month. Black music obviously was popular music for generations before the decree, and it existed in many different forms since the first kidnapped Africans in what is now the United States arrived here. 
If you're interested in learning more about the history of Black music in this country, I'd suggest reading Blues People by Amiri Baraka. It's a really interesting read. It's pretty short. But um, back to 1979. At the time that Black Music Month was created, the biggest thing in American popular music was disco. The artists that were topping the charts in 79 included people like Donna Summer, The Village People, Sister Sledge, and Chic. Disco music and disco clubs arose out of Black, Latinx, and queer communities in large cities, and those were the people who were rightfully most associated with the genre, even after it crossed over from being a subgenre to the white mainstream. The music was celebratory, vibrant, and colorful, but like with any good thing, and especially any good thing Black people create, there was a strong backlash against it. A little over a month after Jimmy Carter officially made June Black Music Month, a crowd of over 50,000 people, almost all white, got together in Kaminsky Park in Chicago, Illinois, ostensibly to go to a baseball game. The Chicago White Sox were expecting about 20,000 people to come. The reason why the number went to over 50,000 is that an anti-disco shock jock worked with the White Sox officials to offer 98-cent tickets to anybody who brought a disco record to be blown up between games on the field. And on June, I'm sorry, not June, on Thursday, July 12th, In between two scheduled games, the box of disco records brought by attendees was blown up, damaging the field, and thousands of attendees ran onto the field and there was a riot. Disco Demolition Night, as it came to be called, might be the most famous incident like this, but it was not the only one. And uh, I didn't, obviously this happened years before I was born, so I wasn't there. But I do remember when I was in middle school, where I grew up, there was a radio station that mostly played disco music, or that was pretty much all that they played. And when they switched the format to being a rock station, instead of just having, I guess, a normal switch, they made a big show of having like this audio on loop as if people were literally smashing disco records. And they played um, We Will Rock You by Queen for like many hours. And I remember like as a little girl feeling like that was such a violent and unnecessary thing to do. Like, what are you trying to say? And I do think that as we're living at a time right now where there's lots of white people who are lashing out against any gains that black people have made in this country... And, you know, that includes a lot of gains that people within the queer community have made, the Black queer community, a lot of innovations that they have contributed to this country. There's a lot of people that don't appreciate it or they feel threatened by it. And I think it's important for us to remember that this isn't a new phenomenon. But I also think that our music is a testament to the strength and resilience of our culture and that we always find ways to create space for joy and celebration, 
no matter how hard the powers that be want to make it for us to survive. Disco Demolition Night in Chicago happened in July 1979, but one month later in New York, something else happened. In August, a group of young men from Harlem got together in a studio to record themselves rapping lyrics over a disco beat. I said a hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, do the hip hip hop, you don't stop the rocket to the bang bang boogie, say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Their track was released in September 1979, and here we are in 2020, 40 years later, and hip hop is still topping the charts. Here's the Sugar Hill Gang with Rapper's Delight. Happy Black Music Month, and thanks for listening to Objection to the Rule. Bye. You don't stop, rock the rhythm, that'll make your body rock. Well, so far you've heard my voice, but I brought two friends along. And next on the mic is my man Hank. Come on, Hank, sing that song. Check it out, I'm the C-A-S and the O-V-A and the rest is F-L-Y. You see, I go by the code of the doctor of the mix, and these reasons I'll tell you why. You see, I'm six foot one, and I'm tons of fun, and I guess to a D. You see, I got more clothes than Muhammad Ali, and I dress so viciously. I got bodyguards, I got two big guards that definitely ain't the whack. I got a Lincoln Continental and a son who's Cadillac. So after school, I take a dip in the pool, which is really on the wall. I got a color TV so I can see the Knicks play basketball. Him and talk on my checkbook, credit cards, more money than a sucker could ever spend. But I wouldn't give a sucker or a bum from the rock and not a dime till I made it again. Everybody go, oh, tell you gonna do today is I'm gonna get a fly girl gonna get some spank and drive off in a death OJ everybody go hotel hotel holiday in say if your girl starts acting up then you take her friend I'm Master G I'm a mellow it's on you so what you gonna do well it's on and on and on and on and on the beat don't stop until the break of dawn I said a M-A-S a T-E-R a G with a double E I said I go by the unforgettable name of the man they call a Master G. Well, my name is known all over the world by all the foxy ladies and the pretty girls. I'm going down in history as the baddest rapper that ever could be. Now I'm feeling the highs and you're feeling the lows. The beat starts getting into your toes. You start popping your fingers and stopping your feet and moving your body while you're sitting and you're sitting. Then damn, you start doing the freak. I said bam, a rider out of your seat. Then you throw your hands high in the air. You're rocking to the rhythm, shake your dairy. Yeah. You're rocking to the beat without a care Cause the short shot MCs for the affair Now I'm not as tall as the rest of the gang But I rap to the beat just the same I got a little face and a pair of rhyme eyes All I'm here to do ladies is hypnotize Singing on and on and on and on and on The beat don't stop until the break of dawn I sing it on and on and on and on and on Like a hot butter to pop, to pop, to pop Give it, give it, pop, to pop, pop You don't dare stop or come alive y'all Give me what you got I guess by now you can take a hunch And find that I am the Baby of the bunch, but that's okay. I still keep in stride, cause all I'm here to do is just a wiggle your behind. Sing it on and, and on and on and on. The beat don't stop until the break of dawn. Sing it on and, and on and on and on and on. Rock, rock, y'all. Throw it on the floor. I'm gonna freak your head. I'm gonna freak your day. I'm gonna move you out of this atmosphere. Cause I'm one of a kind and I'll shock your mind. I put the jig, jig, jiggles in your behind. I say the one, two, three. 
for. Come on, girls, get on the floor. Come alive, y'all, give me what you got, cause I'm guaranteed to make you rock. I said one, two, three, four, tell me one to my, what are you waiting for? To the hip, hop, the hip, to the hip, and the hip, hip, hop, and you don't stop. Rock it to the bang, bang, the boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Well, skittle be bop, we rock a Scooby-Doo, and guess what, America, we love you. Cause it rock and a roll with us so much so You can rock till you're 101 years old I don't mean to brag, I don't mean to boast But we like hot butter on a breakfast toast Rock it out, a baby bubba Baby bubba to the boogie then bang bang The boogie to the beat, beat is so unique Come on everybody and dance to the beat Thank you to Jasmine for that great story and song selection. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And on behalf of the station, I just want to take a minute to let you know about an event coming up called Undercover, a virtual benefit for the music industry. It's going to be at 8 p.m. on Friday, June 19th. Uh, it is virtual, as the title implies, and it's only a dollar to attend in advance, and it's $3.15 a day of admission, I believe. Uh, so the Undercover Concert Series returns Friday, June 19th, with performances by Ash Jesus, The Big Easy, and Eclectic Method. Developed by The Visceral Glitch and A2IM, I, I might be pronouncing that wrong and I apologize, uh, Undercover is a virtual benefit concert series that pairs two musicians to perform original versions of each other's songs. Undercover provides an opportunity for fans to enjoy the live music experiment experience from the safety and comfort of their homes while raising funds for artists whose incomes have been adversely affected by the COVID-19 crisis. Via $1 early ticket purchases and a virtual tip jar, a percentage of donations will be distributed to the Musicians Foundation, as well as participating musicians. Tickets are available at dice.fm. To learn more about the concert series, visit undercover.nyc. So be sure to check that out. Up next, we have a story from Sarah. Here it is. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. I'm back this week with a world story about the global response to the George Floyd protests. Protests in America over the death of George Floyd 
have ignited a response across the world. It's a testament to the power of the Black Lives Matter movement that people have been willing to publicly gather amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and media attention has shifted to cover the protests. Last week, my co-hosts on the show spoke about the myriad intricacies of what has been happening in the U.S., which has been at the forefront of the movement. I've been curious about what the global response would be to the protests and what support from other countries would look like. The U.K.'s government has been largely silent on the matter, but in an article for The Independent, the editorial board declared, quote, Americans should not buy Trump's divisive narrative. The only way to end the racial injustice in the U.S. will be to acknowledge that race and economic inequality are profoundly connected. Solving the COVID-19 crisis, police violence, unemployment, and most other U.S. problems will require connecting the dots between the two, something this president has shown himself incapable of doing. While a lot of media coverage around the globe has been like this, focused on the Trump administration's failure to act in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, along with the administration's threats, unleashing of the National Guard, protesters around the world have gathered outside U.S. embassies in Canada and the U.K., among others, and shown their support for defunding the police force in the United States. An article for Le Monde in France spoke out against Trump's reaction to the protests and highlighted the upsetting contrast between the image of the SpaceX launch with the image of the police killing George Floyd in Minneapolis. But citizens of other countries are reacting to the protests with their own perspectives on what justice across the world can look like for people of color and their allies. In India, citizens are expressing outrage for those who support the protests against George Floyd, but are ignoring police brutality in their own country. India has faced a separate but parallel issue when it comes to its governmental police force and the caste system. Last year, UN experts defined a crisis of extrajudicial killings by police in the state of Uttar Pradesh. The killings, known locally as, quote, encounters, are often defended by the police as necessary acts of self-defense. Sound familiar? These issues date back to the colonial era when the British Raj deployed the police largely to discipline the local population. When India became independent in 1947, its new government retained much of the old British playbook for policing, such as a tiered system of recruitment. Aspiring members of, quote, lower caste families have been facing insurmountable disadvantages, and few make it into the police force, which reinforces the clashes as the world has seen recently with Delhi police violence against demonstrators for and against the government's controversial citizenship laws. These clashes flared into riots after police threw stones at Muslim protesters and beat young Muslim men to death, according to the BBC. Closer to home, in Mexico, La Jornada newspaper expressed concern that the riots and clashes would reach the border between Mexico and the U.S., which has seen its own share of violence at the hands of ICE, especially within the past year. A lot of this news, I think, skirts around the core issue that Black Americans and their allies are fighting for, justice for Black lives. Yet the world is paying attention. Someone painted a portrait of George Floyd on a piece of the Berlin Wall. New Zealanders ignored tight COVID restrictions to march. And artists in Idlib, Syria, dedicated a mural to George Floyd on a building largely reduced to rubble amid the Syrian civil war. The world is watching, and Radio Free Brooklyn will continue to report on the complexities around this issue. The sources used in this piece are from Le Monde in France, ForeignPolicy.com, Time, La Jornada in Mexico, NPR, and PRI.org. Thank you for that story, Sarah. Now here's Matt with an interview focused on local New York politics. 
Hello everyone, this is Matthew Schneeman. A couple of interviews I a couple of interviews ago, a couple weeks ago I interviewed Lacey Tauber about the upcoming primaries for the Democratic Party. Alright. Let's go until we hear a fire truck and then we'll close the window. Sound good? <laughs> okay. Okay. You are Lacey Tauber. I always thought you were Taubert. I don't know why I kept adding a T. <laughs> Okay, you're currently working on Emily uh, Emily Gallagher's oh, here campaign. Here comes the fire truck. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't take long. Okay, currently working on Emily Gallagher's campaign for state assembly. Longtime New Kings Democrat member was a senior project manager for NYC. We say NYC Housing, the housing. The yeah, well, we we would usually just call it HPD, but yeah, it's Housing Preservation and Development. All right, on okay. Uh, former legislative aide for Councilmember Antonio. Legislative director. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, most importantly, you are my roommate. It's true. And on our shared fridge is a sticker that says Dem- "Democracy is not a spectator sport." And throughout much of Lacey's career, that has been seemingly the focus. I'd like to discuss the ways democracy is not democratic and what better way to do that than talking about the primaries, (laughs) which are June 23rd. Um, Lacey, you told me that the district leader positions are important. But you're part of, I mean, this intro is going on way too long, isn't it? I feel like jumping into district leaders is real, is going like real nerd real fast. Yeah. Like maybe we should uh, start with something a little broader and then get into that. Yes. And that, that is the riddle of trying to get into, I mean, this, this is your job, that this quandary of how do we make these weird little things understandable? Um, yes. Yes, that I think describes a lot of what I've done over many years in various capacities. Yeah. Should we just start with what the primaries are and and why they're important? Sure. And I mean, I think this was something that we that we were just talking about before, which is that I think a lot of folks who are maybe new to the city um, or maybe even just folks that aren't that politically engaged, um, which, you know, no judgment. There's a lot of reasons that that might be the case for someone um they don't often realize that new york has closed primaries which means that um in order to vote in the primary you have to be registered with um that party and in new york um since pretty much almost all of the politicians running are democrats um with the exception of a few districts um Staten Island and like Eastern Queens generally. Um, that means that the actual election, the primary is the actual election. There isn't going to be a general because there's not going to be a Republican challenger. Mm. Um, so I would even say if you lean toward, you know, policies and, you know, agenda that w- most resembles that of the Democrats, but you think of yourself as more of an independent and so you register as an independent, unfortunately, that kind of means that you're disenfranchising yourself in New York because you're left out of the races where the real decision-making happens.
that this is this is um, ties into you being a member of the New Kings Democrats because isn't the big mission of this club to uh, make the Democratic Party more democratic? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to caveat that I am not uh, currently a member of their executive committee, so I cannot mm. claim to speak for the organization right now. I am just a member, so I can tell you about the organization a little bit and my experience with them, but I am not representing them in an official capacity in this interview. Um, but yes, um, New Kings <laughs> Democrats are NKD, as we like to call it for short. Could I consider them like a party within a party? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's really just, you know, a grouping of people who are active in politics, who get together and talk about issues and support candidates. NKD is trying to make the Democratic Party more progressive and more open. One uh, one thing they've supported is something called Rep Your Block. You know, their processes and decision-making was very kind of closed off by design. Um, and uh, folks in NKD decided they wanted to figure out ways to change that and figure out ways to just kind of like shine a light on what goes on there. And it's been really cool, actually, because that was, you know, that was 2008. So it's been a long time since they started. And since then, um, there's now a broader borough-wide movement called Rep Your Block that NKD is part of, but there are also a number of other political clubs involved as well um, that are working together to try to encourage people to run for the county committee which is um, the lowest level, I guess, of <laughs> representative democracy. It's a party position. And basically, you just represent your election district. Okay, I'm going to jump in here. There's a paradox in local politics. It's either too boring or too intense. <laughs> so these county committee things and these meetings can be kind of unsexy and boring, but then... When you get in the room, there can be some drama. It can seem very confrontational when you... <clears throat> and I asked Lacey about this confrontation, if things can seem a bit sour. <laughs> I think that's true in one way, but I think other people kind of like the fight, you know? Uh, yeah, these meetings can get pretty crazy. She's not talking about the NKD meeting. She's talking about the county committee meetings. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the, the problem is that um, some of this stuff is really esoteric, right? And it's like about these rules that, uh, you know, you kind of have to know a lawyer to really get to the bottom of, of some of it. But it's about the outcomes again, right? Like um, the, the party was able to go through that process and appoint this new person without a democratic process. And like those of us who believe in democracy think that that is wrong. And if the way that we have to kind of express through the system that we think that is wrong is, you know, extremely pedantic, well, that's what we'll do. But then we'll also, you know, make sure that folks know that, you know, on social media or whatever, calling out that kind of thing so that people understand why um, getting involved is important. And then also just supporting progressive candidates generally, I just like to say that, you know, even if you're not participating in county committee or like trying to change things from the inside, 
voting for progressive candidates is important because that also takes power away from the machine infrastructure. Mm. If they lose their seats, um, then, you know, they, they begin to lose their power. Okay, so primaries are coming up, and one of the positions as part of the Democratic Party that anyone can run for is the, uh, what's it called, the delegate leader? No, district leader. District yeah, leader. so one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, so this primary is, and again, I think this is maybe a step ahead, because first of all, the primaries that are coming up on June 23rd are for state races. There will be city elections in 2021, um, So, but this is only for um, states. So basically the positions that you're going to see on your ballot, which if you haven't requested an absentee ballot yet, you still can, um, or you can vote in person, or you can early vote. There's lots of options this time around because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. They're letting people um, vote absentee basically in mass for the first time ever, which is um, exciting and a little scary to see how it's going <laughs> to get pulled off. Um, but anyway, so the positions you'll see on the ballot when you get it are for state senates and state assembly. And I mean, I think folks are generally aware about positions in the legislature, and we can come back to that and maybe mm-hmm. talk a little about, bit about Emily's race or others. Um, but there's another position that you'll see on there called district leader or state committee person. They're kind of the same thing. And um, I think most people don't really know what that is. And I want I want to encourage folks not to sleep on that. Um, it's an unpaid position, as is county committee. They choose the party chair um, and the party leadership. They um, choose local judicial candidates. They staff poll sites. Um and they participate as members of the state party, and um, I think they send people to the national as well. So for like a very humble, uh, non-paying thing that anyone can run for if they get 500 signatures, they they actually have their fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, yeah, that number is maybe... <laughs> The number of signatures is in dispute, especially this there's, time. There's a lot of signature drama. Yeah, there's a lot of signature drama, which we can or cannot talk about. Up to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, point is that even though it's an unpaid position, it has some important official roles. And then it has, I think um, there's a there's kind of, I would say, a slate of progressive candidates either running for open seats or challenging incumbents this year who I think are trying to kind of redefine what a district leader does and really make the position more dynamic and um, and kind of use that position to support um, the goals that I was talking about before in terms of um, making the party more democratic and opening it up to more people and increasing transparency and all that. Entering district leader. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it like that. Let's see okay, a quick so, flyby of the district yeah. leader races. So I'll just say um, New Kings Democrats has endorsed in five district leader races in Brooklyn. So I encourage folks who are in the following districts to check these folks out. 
in the 51st, which is uh, Sunset Park area, uh, Julio Pena. In the 57th, which is roughly Fort Greene area, um, Shaquana Boykin. Uh, in the 52nd, uh, which is like North Park Slope, Gowanus, uh, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, downtown Brooklyn, uh, Jesse Pierce. In the 50th, Christina uh, Naplatarski, that's uh, Greenpoint, uh, North Side and South Side, Williamsburg, and some of Clinton Hill by the waterfront or Wallabout, um, as we like to call it. And then in the 53rd, which is like East Williamsburg, Bushwick, um, Sammy Oliveris. And I won't go into detail about all of them, but I will say, um, you know, they're they're actually kind of working together and supporting each other um, in bringing that reform vision to the Democratic Party. So it's really exciting to see that happen and um, encourage folks to look into them. So if you're complaining about how stuffy the Democrats can be, uh, the only this is the way Democrats change, right? It's not just that, like, Joe Biden decides one day, hey, you know what? I'm going to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's changed from from uh, from the inside out, I guess. From the inside not out. Not from the top down. <laughs> from the top down. I like all these body directions. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for that interview, Matt. Emily Scott here to close out the show with a little bit of good news. So uh, my information for the story comes from a June 9th New York Times article titled Harper's Bazaar Appoints First Woman of Color as Top Editor, written by Rachel Abrams. For the first time in its 153-year history, Harper's Bazaar magazine, part of Hearst Magazines, will have a woman of color as its editor-in-chief. Samira Nasser is set to start working on July 6th, 6th, July 6th, and comes from the role of fashion director for Vanity Fair, part of Condé Nast. And here's a clip from a video announcement made by Nasser on Harper's Bazaar's Instagram page. As the proud daughter of a Lebanese father and Trinidadian mother, my worldview is expansive and is anchored in the belief that representation matters. My lens by nature is colorful, and so it is important to me to begin a new chapter in Bazaar's history by shining a light on all individuals who I believe are the inspiring voices of our time. I will work to give all voices a platform to tell stories that would never have been told. To all the protesters, community organizers, activists, and those currently fighting to be safe, to be seen and heard through our own narratives, I see you, I thank you, and I hope we can join forces to amplify the message of equality because black lives matter. It is a thrilling challenge to be in a position to reimagine what a fashion magazine can be in today's world. And I know that this position places me in a particular intersection that I do not take lightly. Great style is about more than the way we wear our clothes. It is also how we see and occupy space in the world around us. Congrats to Samira Nasser and Harper's Bazaar. This has been Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you for listening. You can find our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website, as well as iTunes podcasts. And be sure to check out our Facebook page for more information on some of the things we talk about on the show. We'll be back next Sunday at 1 p.m. We're going to play you out with the song Why by Jadakiss and Anthony Hamilton. We hope you stay safe and have a great weekend. Mm
Tell them that it's the flow, son, and you know why they made it. 